if you're a data scientist, I think there's something even more meaningful you can do. So I really would encourage people to, to get involved with nonprofits, offer your skills. Because um, I've, as I've said earlier, you know, I just think there's so much information that can be, can be gleaned from data. And sometimes they're just great opportunities to learn from data and do things a little bit better. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bit.ly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a data analytics industry veteran and entrepreneur. He's an alumnus from the University of North Florida and has earned his MBA from Georgia Tech. He started his career in 1995 at Equifax and has since gone on to start two successful companies, Sigma Analytics in 1997, which was acquired by Merkle, and Analytics IQ in 2006. Analytics IQ is a dynamic, fast-growing marketing data and predictive analytics company that is focused on providing innovative consumer data and analytics solutions. As CEO, he puts culture at the forefront of his company and is proud to work with the tight-knit group of data fanatics who love to move quickly and make things happen for their clients. He's also the founder of a nonprofit organization called Honey and Haven with the mission of supporting an orphanage located in Iganga, Uganda, that helps over 80 children and 11 local women by providing them with work in the orphanage. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, CEO of Analytics IQ, Dave Kelly. Dave, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks, Harpreet. I'm happy to be here. And man, I, I hope I did not butcher the name of that city. Did, did I say that right? I want to do do this town justice. Is it Iganga? Oh, Iganga, yes. Uganda. That's awesome, man. I'd love to hear about how you got to, how you got involved in that. But before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you. So, where did you grow up, and what was it like there? Okay, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, it was hot. Um, you know, the the thing that really had going for it was the ocean. So I grew up surfing, um, you know, spent a lot of time on the beach. But as a kid, I always believed that all roads at that time led to Atlanta, probably literally and figuratively. And I always wanted to move to Atlanta. So um, when I had the opportunity to move or when I decided to go to graduate school, I, um, I picked Georgia Tech. And I've been here for um, nearly 30 years now. 
So is is Atlanta kind of like the the metropolis of of that region where you're from? It, it really is. Um, you know, at least when I was a kid, there really wasn't much going on in Jacksonville, and you know, Atlanta was where all the sports teams were. It's where the business activity was and still is. So, you know, I, I always looked at Atlanta and said, wow, it would be great to live there. And then at some point I did. So I'm, I'm originally from, from California. So surfer culture is very, very much ingrained in me, even though I don't know how to surf. I've never surfed. I just go to the beach and love watching them surf. So I didn't, I didn't know that Jacksonville had a surfing culture and a surfing community there. Were you pretty heavily involved in that? Did you surf a lot or at all? Um, well, I did surf quite a bit. And, um, you know, our waves aren't great compared to California, but we had a little something. Um, so you actually could do it. Um, you know, it, it was fun. I haven't actually tried it in a while. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if it's like riding a bike, if I could just hop on a surfboard and and do it again. Um, but it was something I used to enjoy, but I still love the ocean, you know, love anything connected to the water. And if I had one major criticism of Atlanta, besides the traffic, it would be lack of a body of water. I'm very, very much the same way. Like I, I love, I love bodies of water. Like I, I want, <laughs> My, my dream in life is to just have this basement office that I'm sitting in just be something that overlooks a nice lake with some mountains or something. I just love being next to water. It's something very peaceful and, and tranquil about that, isn't it? Totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. So so that's, that's awesome background here and about growing up in Jacksonville. But you know, when you're in high school, when you're right around that age, what did you think your future would look like? Did you think that it would be something that uh, analytics would be something that you'd be involved in? Uh, no, I hadn't. I had no idea. Um, I've always been really good at math, probably like a lot of your listeners. Um, but I, I honestly didn't even know it was a profession. Um, you know, like a lot of people in life, I sort of have meandered along and come to a fork in the road and you sort of decide which way you're going to go. And I just say that's probably the best description of how I've ended up where I am. It wasn't because... You know, I was Steve Jobs or something and had some vision, you know, when I was really little, it sort of um, took advantage of opportunities as they came up all along the way. So what was it that you wanted to be when you're in high school? What, what did you think you're going to be when you grew up? Uh, an astronomer. Yeah, that was and I'm still fascinated by astronomy and astrophysics, but that was really what I wanted to do. Um, why didn't? Meh, not sure. But um I would say from age like four to age 16, um, that was my obsession. When I was in early high school, I was very much so obsessed with um, with astronomy as well. I remember back in those days, I think it was uh, we had a 486 computer that just got connected yeah. to the inter internet. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty old. I'm talking old school here. I would spend a large majority of my time surfing the web and and just researching about uh, black holes and, and the galaxy yeah. and universe and things like that. I would just countless hours doing that stuff. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by it. I read a lot about it, um, but it's just a hobby now. Any any particular books you read about it or is there any source that you go to? Um, well, you know, right now I'm reading a great book by Avi Loeb. He's He heads up the astronomy department at Harvard and he a book just came out about um, Oumuamua. If you're, if you recall that um, thing from outside of our solar system that kind of came shooting through a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, he's, he believes it's, um, it's artificially constructed and he has a lot of really interesting um, data 
you know, in this book. So like I said, I find it totally fascinating. Yeah. Check that out. So, okay. So you went from, from wanting to be an astronomer into astronomy and then into database marketing. So, so what, what is, what is database marketing and, and how did you become interested in it? Well, you know, database marketing to me, from my perspective is really applying um, science to data to market smarter. Um, and, you know, like, like I said earlier, I um, just sort of meandered my way into that space. I had, um, you know, one, one, one thing about me, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And my first startup was in the risk analytics space. Um, and it was back in what I call the good old days when um, you could make a living, you know, building um, like credit scoring models and risk models for large companies. And I sold the company to a large uh, marketing agency. And for the first time, got exposed to marketing data. And at the time, and this time only being, you know, 13, 14 years ago, there wasn't a lot of science applied to marketing data. Um, you know, they a lot of people still call it compiled data, meaning, you know, implying that it's more of an IT function than an analytics function. So when I started Analytics IQ, the focus was totally on um, taking a scientific approach to creating marketing data and you know, predicting smarter. So I've actually never heard that that terminology before. Uh, compiled data—that's a new one for me. What what exactly does that mean? Well, I think it refers to um, if you look, you know, way back in um, twenty years ago, that um, the way marketing data was created, it was um, little bits and pieces of information that you compiled together. So instead of saying, hey, let's take an analytical approach, let's model this, because that might be a better way than just sticking it together. Um, I think that the compiled name is still stuck around referring to the way that kind of data used to be put together. How did you how did you kind of start analytics IQ? Like what was the the opportunity you saw in the market and how did that like spark this idea for starting this this company? Well, I'm a big believer that if you if you or any of your listeners ever jump out and start your own company, you need to be really sure that you have a competitive advantage of some sort. Your advantage might just be that you have a pricing advantage, but to me, it's even better to say, well, I've built a better mousetrap and the world cares about better mousetraps. In this case, um, I had a front row seat to one of the really large marketing agencies, um, kind of got to see firsthand how um, I would say inaccurate a lot of the marketing data was. And I just believe there was an opportunity to do it better. So I um, jumped out and started a new company and started acquiring, um, you know, data sets and hiring data scientists. And, you know, we started um, from scratch building our own marketing tools. So what would you say analytics IQ, like the, what's the company all about? Like what's, what would you say the mission statement of the company is? So our mission is to create um, more relevant information about humans. Um, with the intent that 
with this information, marketers can um, put much more relevant information in front of you. Um, you know, for example, you know, I, my youngest child is 18. Do I really need to sit through diaper commercials, for example, um, on one hand, but on the other hand, do I need commercials, you know, aimed at retirement? So with, we, I believe with better data, you can create a more relevant experience for people. And, you know, I've known from the beginning of the analytics IQ to use, you know, another analogy, we build hammers, you know, we don't build houses, but we build a tool that we think can be really relevant to building a better house. And our mission is just to build the best hammers possible. So, you know, like I said, from the very beginning, everything we've we've ever built, we validate it. We make sure that, you know, independently that, hey, we're predicting that this household owns a cat. Well, we validate that. It's a prediction. You know, it's not a fact, but we, our mission is to do something that's much, much better than knowing nothing about the household. That's really interesting. And just like, just kind of fascinating how you're able to to create these data sets i guess without sharing too much of the secret sauce here like how does that work like how does this process work to create these data sets that you create i mean um, we'll we'll talk about one of your your big ones a little bit later but like is is it just a matter of i'm going to call up every house in the neighborhood (laughs) hey do you own cats no um so we do surveys and the, the general idea is you, you can know something about a small group of people and then you can project, project it and predict it on a larger group of people. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the concept in data science. So we do a lot of surveys. So um, to use the cat example, um, perhaps we reach out to 10,000 individuals and ask them a pretty simple question. Do you own a cat or not? And I think that's easy because everybody knows whether they own a cat and people have no motivation to lie about it. So, um, and that's important and we can talk about later why I say that, but certain things are are pretty straightforward. And in this case, let's say that out of 10,000 people, 2,000 people say, yes, I own a cat, 8,000 people say, no, I don't own a cat. Well, you know, so we we wade into the data and say, okay, what's different about people that own cats versus people that don't? And I don't have it in front of me, but let's just say that um, people that are single are more likely to own cats, perhaps. Maybe people that live closer to a city center, so they're less likely to have a large yard. Uh, maybe a certain age range, maybe it skews towards a gender. Um, so we build a model and we say, okay, we, li- we like it. We were able to predict this with this all this independent data and we'll project it out to our entire universe. So in our case, at the moment, we're focused on the USA. So we'll, we'll project it out to the universe of 200 million US adults. We'll independently validate it with another survey, but when it's all done, we'll go, okay, we now... Um, have a universe of 20 million individuals, 20 million households, I mean, where we we believe they own a cat and our independent validation has said that we're 80% accurate, that 80% of these people do indeed own cats. So if you're, you know, a large, if you're a company that markets products to cat owners like cat litter or cat food, you in turn will pay us a royalty for using this, this model that we created. So that's a fundamentally our business you know, on a good month, we collect royalties on around a billion transactions. So digital ads that are displayed are, you know, there's a decent chance one of our models is behind it. That is really, really fascinating. That's super cool how you guys put that together. And definitely 
really interested in, in learning more about that. And we'll, we'll get to that here shortly. Thank you for, for giving us an idea of what Analytics IQ does um, and you know kind of what the mission statement is all about and how you guys put together these data sets. But what's the change that you want to see in the world as a result of, of starting this company? Especially as someone who's involved in a nonprofit also, I would say um, I can't claim that, you know, um, I'm solving for you know, global warming or something with the core business that the company has. But I would say, I do think, and not everybody agrees with this, but I do think the world would be a very slightly better place if you have a more relevant experience um, when you're online, when you're watching smart television um, in terms of, okay, well, at least um, relevant products are being put in front of me. The other thing I think is, you know, right at the moment we have 35 employees and my hope is we're providing, you know, a better life for these employees and their families. So, you know, I, I look at both those things and, you know, I feel good about it. That's pretty interesting because back in the days when we didn't have smart TVs, we just got whatever commercials were put in front of us, right? And so nowadays it's, you know, if you're watching stuff on YouTube or, or what have you, the ads are are more tailored towards what it is that, that you're interested in. So kind of in the background of what, what's happening, it, it could be some of the work that um, Analytics IQ is doing to, to help us some of this relevant relevant stuff, right? It very well could be. And, you know, um, smart TV is kind of in the early stages, but more and more, you know, if you watch things on demand, especially if you watch things on demand with commercials, you know, again, the, um, the provider has the opportunity to use data to target the commercials. I don't think it always happens, but increasingly it does. Really fascinating. And I mean, this is all kind of like a, a, a new world to me in the sense that this is how, how we can leverage these compiled data sets to to help make better experiences for for people in terms of you know whether it's putting relevant products in front of them or giving them relevant content um, how else can you see data scientists working inside of larger companies benefit from using external data sources well no matter how much good first party data you have, you know, first party referring to typically known data about your customers. It's it's often helpful to get an outside perspective and to know more. And increasingly, we're trying to focus on things that you can't know about people. You could only predict them. For example, um, perhaps you can know my age, you can know my gender, you can know what kind of car I drive. Those are all things that are possible to know. You can't know how important the environment is to me. You can only predict it, right? So increasingly, we're focused more on things that you can only predict about people. And, you know, we, um, we believe we have a place at the table. And, you know, in many, many cases, even when there, these kind of like credit card companies have really rich data, they still find that we can add some value into um, them understanding their customers better and messaging their customers better. And that's really interesting because it's, it's adding like a whole nother dimension to the data. And this is something that Natalie's IQ does kind of um, uniquely and, it, and it's the cognitive psychology type of dimension. So, Talk to us about this. How is it that you guys are incorporating this type of data into your data set? And, and then maybe talk to us about the uh, people core data set. Sure. Um, so we have several cognitive psychologists that work for us. And, you know, some years ago, we started to um, 
Well, actually, when we first started in surveys, we started, we understood that um, sometimes people don't know things about themselves. Sometimes people, um, I don't think maliciously lie, but they do lie about sensitive subjects, maybe even to themselves. And we realized that we needed to take a different approach to collect the kind of data that we wanted. Um, so thus, you know, first partnering with a cognitive psychologist and then hiring our own cognitive psychologists, we you know, treat it like a personality test. You know, you, it's really difficult to come out and ask someone um, their motivation for donating. You can, I just don't think people always know what it is. So we treat it like a personality survey where you ask questions different ways. You, um, you ask pieces of a question and you stick the question together at the end. You throw out deceptive answers. And again, it's it's very similar to how personality tests are done. So it's kind of like the um, like for example, speaking of personality tests, like the Myers Briggs test, for example. That's that's like the popular one. I think a lot of people, a lot of people have taken that. And if you have, again, it just it doesn't ask you three questions. It asks you a number of questions to to um, slot you into a personality type. And I would say that's the exact same approach we take with things we do. There might be a relatively simple thing that we're modeling, like whether someone has extrinsic motivations for donating to a nonprofit, meaning, you know, they want the attention, they want their name on a building. The opposite of that is intrinsic, meaning I don't want anybody to know that I'm involved with, I'm donating. It's a spectrum. But to get to that, we, we ask a lot of different types of questions so that we feel confident that we've correctly um, stratified people based on the particular thing that we're trying to predict before we model it out to our universe. So, you know, we, we deal with, you know, PhD um, cognitive psychologists um, who've made it their life's mission to do what we're trying to do. And honestly, it, it was difficult at first to pull these things together because they don't naturally fit together, but it's kind of been awesome. And, and I feel like we've been able to create things that, that we can see really work. Um, and they're not the run of the mill, you know, again, just trying to predict someone's income just a little bit better than our competitors. It's trying to go into uncharted territory and do something completely unique, which, you know, we as data scientists find exciting. And I found it interesting, like, the, like you know, you're talking about uh, people might have a motivation to lie, right? People don't necessarily have a motivation to lie about the the uh, number of cats they have or if they have a cat right. or not, but they might be motivated to lie about some other things. H how is it that you structure your questions to kind of um, get past that? And uh, hopefully I'm not digging too much into secret sauce here. Let me know. But uh, uh, I just find that really fascinating. Yeah, let me try to think of a good example. So, um, you know, for example, we have a model that predicts whether someone or to the degree that an individual suffers from stress and the, the reason that's valuable is, you know, certain pharmaceutical companies, it's, it's interesting information for them. And again, it, it's something you could only predict. And it's really not just as simple as saying, hey, you know, do you suffer from stress? You know, put yes or no. We usually ask corollaries like, you know, how well do you sleep? Well, I feel like that's something people can usually answer correctly. You know, we ask, uh, you know, how many hours a week someone works? We look at these corollaries and then at the end you pull it together and say, okay, um, this is a group that we're confident 
suffers from stress. And this is a group that we're confident that they're the opposite. They, they have little or no stress in their life. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's dancing around something, especially a sensitive subject to get to what you're really trying to understand. And I could just imagine how much fun the data scientists and the data analysts that work at your company have with this type of data, because there's, that's just opens up so many different ways to do exploratory data analysis and things like that. It sounds super, super fascinating. Um, if you guys are hiring, let me know. If you're <laughs> we're, we're growing and we are hiring. Yes. Hey, well then I'll, I'll definitely be sure to drop a link in the, in the show notes so that people can, uh, go apply for, for that. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. So, so this people core data set, um, so is this like the, the main data set that you have this people core one, or are there other data sets that you have? Um, you know, what, what's kind of unique about the people core data set? Okay. So we have two data sets. We have people core, which is focuses on us consumers. And then we have business core, which focuses on us companies and in dealing with companies is sort of an aside. We take the, essentially the same approach of like, okay, you know, what can you, what would be valuable that you can only predict about people within companies because humans are still behind companies and humans are the ones making decisions. So cognitive psychology, you know, trying to predict things over there. People core is all about U.S. consumers. And I believe we have around 1500 things that we've predicted and we add 50 to hundred per quarter. So we're constantly doing more surveys, um, building out new tools, validating tools, occasionally throwing tools out. I, I will say there have been things in the past we've tried to do, and you know what? We never were successfully able to. Um, but if, but many, many things we think you can predict with our type of data. Um, so that people core is our term for all of these attributes as a group and on the consumer side. How big is this data set? Or is it like billions of columns and millions of well, rows? Like how, how massive is this thing? Well, you know, some talking to data scientists, I mean, you know, it's um, 200, 200 million rows. So there is a row for each um, adult U.S. consumer. So for me, we you know uh, Dave Kelly, 123 Main Street. But then here are all these columns. It's these 1,500 things we predict about Dave Kelly. You know, he's a male. Um, here's his age. You know, these different things that we predict. Um, that's kind of what it looks like. Um, the reality in the modern marketing world is, you know, while it sits where, where humans live, humans don't, you know, physically live online. They live in homes that are, you know, geographically somewhere. We convert it to IP addresses and um, mobile IDs and other ways that we can connect to consumers. Um, I feel like nowadays I'm living more and more on the web. And uh, correct, that's so correct. What trends have you noticed with respect to the need for data sets like this uh, in this pandemic age that we are currently going through? Well, you know, um, when this thing first started, I would have said, "Well, I have no idea what's going to happen," just like everyone else. Um, but as it turns out, screen time has gone up a lot, like um, tremendously. And to be honest with you, it's um, um, while the pandemic has been a tragedy, definitely don't want to minimize that. It has been good for our company in the sense that demand has gone up. So I never would have dreamed that we had a like a stay-at-home kind of company, you know, a company that benefited from the modern economy. But as it turns out, we've been able to pivot, and it has. Parts of our business are down, 
You know, we used to work with cruise lines and other um, industries that are way off, but the parts that are up have more than made up for it. And I found it really interesting that you guys were able to identify this the kind of feature or or persona rather pandemic personas um so talk to us about about that maybe share how people's attitudes are intersecting with the way they act during these times i'm sure everybody listening to this is fully aware no matter where they are in the world you know there's a spectrum of concern about safety i believe um from people i know who um seldom leave their homes. They don't take their masks off. They certainly wouldn't eat in a restaurant or or anything that at least right now to other people who seem to have no concern whatsoever. And, you know, um, they hate to wear a mask. They only do it if they have to. So it's a spectrum. And we set out to, and we believe that we could classify people based on that spectrum. And we have been able to actually. So we do segment individuals based on where they are on the safety spectrum and some other, you know, personas around the pandemic. Um, From our perspective, um, it's something that we could sort of showcase what we could do. Um, You know, we always like to um, step into new trends because, you know, we, if if you look at our business model, one thing that I think um, as a business person that's special is we can take an idea and turn it into a validated data product like extremely quickly. So with this, we knew that our competitors weren't going to be able to put anything out about the pandemic and, and they still won't be able to for quite a while because of the nature of the way data is created, but it's something we could do quickly. So, and it's something we did. Um, I, I believe we came out with it last summer. So, you know, it's something we were able to have an idea and get it out there. And, you know, we, we make it available um, for um, some worthy causes with, with, of course, without us taking a fee. Um, we've made it available to some researchers who are, you know, trying to, um, you know, understand how better to react to the pandemic. And, you know, certainly we most likely have made some money on it, too, from other sources. I think one, one question that kind of naturally pops into my head is how do we make sure that data is managed in in a safe way so that you know we're protecting individual you know people's data people's identities things like that it's it's a very very sensitive subject and um if you look back I guess it would have been four years ago now, five years ago now like Cambridge Analytica was in the news quite a bit at least here in the states and you know, for, um, in my opinion, misusing private data. We don't use any private data. So when I say we're building a model, it literally is taking things like census data and public record data that's by individually doesn't mean a lot, but that's where data science enters. So we have around 100 different data sets that we use. None of them involved involve, you know, um, any kind of patient data. We don't use any kind of scraped internet data. We don't use tracking data. So we just, our model is do the best we can with data that's totally, you know, compliant with the way the world is moving. You know, this is a kind of a odd thing to say, but regulation doesn't bother me. I think it actually bothers our competitors so much that it's good for us. So, and there is increasing, you know, regulation. CCPA is a you know, a California regulation around privacy, again, it's good for us because these are things we've always done. So, um, 
It is a concern we have. We don't also, we don't keep the individual research, you know, when we do surveys, we don't keep the individual replies either. So even though um, person A may have responded to a survey and we technically could know something about them, we throw that out. So in people core, it's not what they told us, it's what we predict. That's really cool. That's awesome that you guys are staying ahead of the curve with respect to you know privacy and all that stuff. It's, it's really not an area that I've had to um, focus on in my most recent job, but previously it was definitely a big concern. I think a lot of up-and-coming data scientists and data analysts could do well by researching some of these types of uh, requirements, uh, like you mentioned CCPA, GDPR, things like yes. this. Thanks, thanks for uh, talking about that. You mentioned that um, you've made data uh, the the data set available to you know nonprofits and and essentially making available to do good with. So, how can we use a data set like People Core for good? Well, we think um, you know knowing more about people is always helpful. Um, you know. Um, um, we we do work with nonprofits. Um, we work with some large ones who are clients. So there's a you know financial arrangement, but um, and we work with one of the largest um, children's cancer charities in the world. And you know we're passionate about what we do with them. We you know while it's always good to see your clients do well, we really really want them to do well. And it's something that we're all passionate about. And, you know, what we've, we have found that better data helps these nonprofits get better marketing results. It decreases their marketing costs. Um, so, you know, we feel like we are helping a bit. And, you know, we're, we're always open to working with, um, there are nonprofits where um, they're, um, it's not reasonable for them to, to buy our data. And we're always happy to work with, um, causes that are, you know, that we deem worthy to help them do better. And if they can't afford to pay us, they can't afford to pay us. You know, that's okay. Yeah, that's really cool, man. So, I mean, we have a lot of listeners who are up and coming data scientists and students and and plus data science itself is just a, a type of field where you can pick up projects, you can pick up data and you can start start doing things and, and you know, start making a change almost immediately. Um, so how can somebody who's armed with nothing but a laptop and then and an internet connection use data and analytics for good well um there's a couple of thoughts there and and one thing i did want to mention we also make our data available to universities so if anybody's listening and it'd have to be in the u.s because that's where our data is but we at no charge make our data available to universities we want data science students to play with our data to get used to it just like when I was in grad school, you know, I got exposed to using SAS and, you know, I don't know how much, you know, Georgia Tech paid SAS, but at a minimum, you come out of school going, okay, this is what I know how to use. So it's what I'll use in the future. Um, so we want people to play with our data. We make it available to universities. Again, if anybody's listening and they'd like um, our data to be available at their university, certainly reach out to us. And um, again, no charge. We, we just want people to, to use our data. Um, but more specifically to your question, in my opinion, there's just a ton of data waiting to be analyzed. Um, there are so many insights that could be had from data, you know, so I would definitely encourage everyone to volunteer, offer their, their particular skill. Um, I, I will say, having gotten involved with this orphanage and the orphanage had been around for quite a while, um, 
you know, bringing the special insight that I have around data science, you know, there, there were things that you could learn to be more efficient. And again, one thing that all enterprises have in common these days is data. And it, I, like I said, I still believe there's just tons of data waiting to be analyzed and for like really meaningful insights to come from that analysis. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for sharing that. I'm definitely going to um, include a, a, link to uh, well maybe you'll I'll, I'll get a link from you rather include that into the show notes where people can uh, reach out if they're part of a university to um get some some of your data to, to you know help with whatever research they're doing um we're also going to give you guys um access to a small little sample of the people core data set as well i'll include a link to that in the show notes to maybe help um provide our listeners with some ideas or maybe some some tips for maybe some small initiatives that they can take up on their own for leveraging data for good well like i said um i, I one regret I have is I actually, in my opinion, did not do enough um, throughout the world. I mean, I was raising kids and starting businesses, but that's not a great excuse. Um, I, I would encourage everyone to volunteer their time. And whereas, you know, some people, you know, what they can do for a nonprofit is, you know, stand at a table, you know, at a at a 5k race or something to, um, you know, to help. But if you're a data scientist, I think there's something even more meaningful you can do. So I really would encourage people to, to get involved with nonprofits, um, you know, um, offer your skills. Um, cause I've, as I've said earlier, you know, I just think there's so much information that can be, um, can be gleaned from data. And, you know, one thing about nonprofits is, and this is sort of stereotyping. They're not always run by business people. And sometimes they're just great opportunities to learn from data and do things a little bit better. Do you have any, uh, any examples of, of, of one of your partnerships that you've done with a nonprofit that leveraged your data for their cause? And, and how was it that you guys worked together? What was the, the problem that they were able to, um, to help solve? Sure. Um, so as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we work with one of the largest um, children's cancer charities, at least in the U.S. And um, with what they do, um, I'd say their, their problem they were trying to solve is to getting better marketing results. One way that we attack that was especially when we started building these um, personas and digging into people a little bit more was um, what kind of message really resonates with individuals. So this particular charity, they've done great things in curing or, or moving towards a cure for childhood leukemia. The sur childhood survival rate has gone up tremendously since this charity has been around. Um, but, um, and that's, that's great. That's a fact that would appeal to anybody. And let's just hypothetically say they've increased the survival rate by 50%. On another note, there's the, what I would call the tearjerker side of a charity where perhaps it's a, a picture of a child who's clearly suffering from cancer. So what we found is that while the fact that the childhood survival rate goes up appeals to everybody, the, the picture of the child suffering from cancer appeals to everybody. 
um, you know, in terms of motivating. Some individuals respond better to one over the other. So one thing that we did was dig in and say, can we divide people based on how, let's just say conscientious they are, meaning conscientious, meaning they want a lot of facts before they make a decision versus the other end of that spectrum is impulsive, meaning they make people who make decisions based on emotion, they make immediate decisions. So one thing that we've successfully done is say, okay, let's divide people based on this spectrum so that we can put a message in front of people that are conscientious, a fact. And that appeals to these people. It's, it's information, it's data, they process it, they make a donation. On the other hand, individuals who respond better to an emotional prompt, well, great, we put this picture that is motivating and it, it gets these individuals also to make a donation. So, you know, it's a nuance. I mean, you know, it's, it's something that perhaps gets 10% better results, but when you start talking about large numbers and a really large marketing budget that that actually makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you're talking, you know, about the at scale, 10% can make a huge difference. So that that's really cool. So I guess anybody listening now that you've kind of have an idea of how you can leverage external data to help a nonprofit organization, maybe something that you can do for your local community is maybe find a homeless shelter in your local community, reach out to them, right? Now that you know Analytics IQ exists, maybe you guys can come into a partnership with analytics IQ, get some, get some data and combine it with whatever their, their donors information they have and maybe help them design a campaign to get more donations to help um, with, with essentially helping the, the, the homeless in your community. Would that be kind of a, a one where we can use that? It's a great idea. It's totally a great idea. Yep. So do you have a project that, you know, if you had time, you think would be pretty interesting, or pretty cool to do with uh, one of these free data sets that you're going to be giving our audience? Um, well, you know, um, I think that it's really important for newer data scientists to um, play with data, um, to understand the difference between things that cause something versus things that are just a corollary of something. So, you know, example I always use because I'm super tall um, that I always say, well, and, and you know, I'm six foot five and I wear size 13 shoes. So does that mean that, because um, if you look at a universe of tall people, maybe almost all of them have big feet. Does that mean having big feet makes you tall or is it just something that is a side effect of being tall? And I've found that on their first day with us, a lot of data science is coming from out of grad school. Um, it's something that has to be learned. Like, okay, maybe you can't get all the answers just from the data. Maybe there are things you need to think about or you, it's important to know, um, you know, have more information than just put some data in front of me and let me start crunching numbers. So, you know, I, I feel like the more um, people can play with data, understand, you know, cause and effect, um, you know, the better they'll be as data scientists. And, you know, um, getting your hands on, you know, um, people who are trying to solve problems and, you know, way back in the day, I don't, you know, this goes back 12, 14 years, Netflix offered a $1 million prize for the person who could come up with the best algorithm that predicted the, you know, the, the next video that someone would want to watch based on their history. Um, and does that sound at all familiar, Harpreet? It does. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I remember that one very clearly. And they made that data available and they were really one of the first ones. And I remember getting the data myself and, you know, my company was really early and we played with it and we built a model and and I was shocked at how predictive the winning model was because I looked later. Um, But, you know, it's, you can always learn something when you're trying to really put your hands on a data set. And there's lots of problems in the world that have not been solved. Maybe it's not Netflix. Again, maybe it's a homeless shelter that could use a lot more funding. That's a problem that's waiting to be solved. So, you know, um, and it's only limited. It's only limited by creativity, right? When it comes to data, when it comes to what you could do, you, you are really like limited by your creativity. That's the only limit you have. And when you think of it that way, there is so much that you can you can do, right? Totally agree. I totally agree. Um, you know, none of us knows what the future totally holds, but I think it's really safe to say that data science will be a great profession for many years to come because data is always going to be um, um, an output of doing things and learning from data is always going to be important. And I don't, I think we're many years away from a true AI that without any context can just step into a data set and start solving um, problems and answering questions. You know, I think humans will have a role in that for at least for the foreseeable future. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, guys check the show notes. There's going to be a link to get a free sample data set from analytics IQ with Scott, uh, 500 rows, 50 columns. That's more than enough for you to do some real fun exploratory data analysis with, you know, do it in do it in Python. Tag me, tag Dave, tag Analytics IQ on LinkedIn. I want to see what you guys are doing. Put it up on your Tableau Publix dashboard. Tag me and tag Analytics IQ. Let us know what you guys are doing with it because I'm I'm super excited to see how you guys flex your creativity with this awesome data set and then what you guys come up with. Um, I've had a chance to to play around with it and it's super fascinating. Um, so definitely, guys, click on that link in the show notes and and yeah, tag me in what you do because I really really want to see what you guys come up with. Um, so thanks for thanks for telling us about that, Dave. So you've been in, involved in some really amazing entrepreneurial initiatives. Do you have any advice or tips for anyone who's who's toying with the idea of entrepreneurship? Um, definitely. Um, as I said earlier, you know, make sure you have a competitive advantage of some sort. Um, without that, uh, it is very difficult to step into any market and go, well, it's the same. People just choose me instead of this other one for some reason. So that has to be there. Um, and, and admittedly, it's hard to be objective sometimes about it as an individual. So I always encourage people to have a focus group and the focus group could just be family members who are painfully honest, for example, you run the idea by them. Um, in terms of traits, um, to be an entrepreneur and succeeding, to be honest with you, the biggest one I've ever found is you just have the ability to blame yourself first when something goes wrong. If, if it's your personality to always blame others um, even sometimes if an initial thought is maybe it's true, I feel like it's difficult to learn and evolve. And one thing that's sure for everybody who's ever started a business, and I think I, I would think this even applies to like an Elon Musk, things don't always work out the way exactly the way you think they will. Some things aren't going to go well, but you have to have the ability to objectively learn from mistakes and evolve and change. So to me, those are the biggest things. The, the common thing everybody says, but I definitely found it to be true, is you'll need a lot more money than you'll think you will. So that's another thing that I've found to be a fact also. 
Thank you very much for, for sharing that. Yeah, the accountability part, I think, is um, something, you know, I struggle with sometimes as well. And that's probably a big, big key factor for really being successful as an entrepreneur, because you are really like, you are the one that you have to answer to, right, at the end of the day. Um, so thanks very much for sharing that. So, you know, in terms of data science, data analytics, entrepreneurship in this COVID world that we are in, what do you see as some some problems worth tackling that maybe an, an enterprising analytics professional can identify and maybe, you know, seize? Um, I think there's tons of room for innovation in all areas because data science is such a broad um, subject. Um, you know, people are working with all types of different data, all types of markets. Um, I've just found that there's still room for innovation um, I believe the market still needs quicker and more effective ways to learn from data, you know, feedback loops. So, for example, you know, um, a company runs an ad. Well, you know, when can you get the data from that? When can you learn from it so that you can make it better? I still feel that in most markets, you know, that feedback loop takes still takes way too long. But in general, you know, I think whatever market um you as a listener are in, I think there's lots of room for innovation. And I would just encourage everybody to step back and go, hey, looking past the specifics of this data, how what would make things better? Like, and you know, sometimes it sometimes it involves thinking about things that aren't realistic, but that can turn into things that are realistic. And you know, so my general feeling is we're so early in data science. Um, it's an it's a, still a relatively early thing, and that there are still a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that wonderful advice. I really, really appreciated it. So talk to us about the work that you're doing with uh, Honey and Haven. Sure. So it's an orphanage. Um, it's been around for quite a while. Um, I, um, through a family friend, was fortunate enough to get involved with it. And um, we formed, uh, this partner and I formed um a 501c3, which is the U.S. legal entity, like corporation for nonprofit in early 2020. And, you know, our mission is to, to provide meaningful lives for these children. And it really helps you put things in perspective, um, especially those of us, you know, that are, you know, um, live in, um, you know, developed economies and, you know, where our problems are different than a problem if you live in, a, in Uganda, in my opinion, especially if you're a young child without parents. So it does help you put things in perspective. I found it like extremely rewarding. And to be honest with you, my mission is to do my small part to, to help make better lives for this small group of children, you know, around 100 kids but to go really deep in, in terms of, of what we're doing for them. So that's that's my mission and what I hope to get out of it. That's absolutely beautiful. And if people wanted to learn more or, or help you in any way with this initiative, is there a website they can go to? Yes, it's honeyandhaven.org or reach out to me directly. Again, you know, happy to um, educate people on the problem there. Does They don't, because believe me, the problem is massive. Um, our particular orphanage isn't the only way to get involved, but happy to educate people on what we're doing and how they could help. Thank you very much. So we've got a last formal question before we jump into the random round. So it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Um, I, I'd say my first thing that comes to my mind is to be a good father. Like I, I hope 
you know, my it's 100 years in the future, my great, great, great grandchildren can go, wow, you know, um, so obviously he was a great dad. His kids turned out really well. You know, I think those of us who are parents, I think, you know, that has to come first. Um, but other than that, you know, that um, that I was involved in starting and building something that in some form or another survived and it, you know, it, it helped on this journey um, you know, along this data science road to some extent. Um, so yeah, um, if I am remembered, I, I hope it's for being a good father, being a good boss, maybe making a small difference in some some lives of some children, hopefully many children over the years, if you look into the future. It's absolutely beautiful. And I, I know you're well on your way to doing that, Dave. Um, so let's jump into our random round. First question here, what's your favorite stat that makes data lovers think? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, the, I mentioned astronomy earlier. The speed of light, for some reason, I've just always found it totally fascinating. You know, 300,000 kilometers per second. The fact that anything could be that fast, yet the closest star to us still takes over four years at that speed for light to reach us. Like that just kind of blows me away. The the distances, the scale in our universe. It it really does put things in perspective, right? When you think about how far the distances is are and really how short your lifespan is compared to, you know, that distance, if that makes sense. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So as a, as a fellow Porsche owner myself, I've got to ask, uh, what's your favorite model? <laughs> um, well, non 11 for sure. Um, you know, I, I wish I could say I owned, uh, you know, a, a 991 GT3, which gets to really specific Porsche. Um, I don't, I, I but you know, um, the, um, the 918 Spider. I've only seen one of those in person. And I don't know if you have Harpreet. Um, not, no. Amazing vehicle. It costs a million dollars. Way too But it is a super cool car. Yeah. You know, it, we can all dream a little bit, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the... Uh the Panamera. I like big cars. I just, I like big cars. Yeah. And I mean, it's not the, the fastest one, but I like the Panamera. And, and well, I've had two Panameras. They're, they're great cars and they are big cars. There's no yeah. doubt about that. Yeah. That, the, the brand new uh, Cheyennes are really nice. So my wife has got the, the Macan. I'm, I'm more of like a Lexus guy myself. That's like my, my go-to car, but we bought the Porsche for my wife just as, as a push present because um, she just, we had her first kid uh, just about nine months ago. So that was oh. kind of, Congratulations. Of, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so Macan's nice, but it's still like, I feel, because I, I mean, I'm very much shaped like an avocado. So I feel, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the Porsche are a little bit too small for me, um, but they're beautiful cars. Man. I absolutely love them. They are. You have to appreciate the engineering, I think. So when do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will happen? And what will that video be about? Well, could you help me out by what's the record now? Like I have yeah. no idea. So right now, uh, it is about 8.6 billion views and it is Baby Shark. And oh. <laughs> yeah, before Baby Shark, it, Baby Shark just overtook the Justin Bieber song Despacito. Um, uh, and those are about 8, 8 billion-ish. Wow. So it's still quite a ways to a trillion. Um, you know, as the world gets more connected, it would certainly have to be something that really resonates with a really wide variety of people. Um, I've actually never seen either of those videos, although I do like that song. 
Um, so I think it'd have to be something that really resonates. It's probably something I can't predict. It'd be like a cat doing something crazy or some, um, you know, um, song that someone in Albania puts out or something. Um, when it happens, if we're only up to 8 billion, which seems to just barely more than there are humans on Earth, I've got to think it's going to be... S- in the distant future, you know, <laughs> let's say 50 years from now. If it is the year 2044 right now and you're watching this, do your part and share this video. Do your part, share the video. Let's help get, <laughs> let's help get this video to a trillion views. So in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds when they meet you for the first time? You know, I think throughout my life, it's just that I'm very tall. Um, I'm close to six foot six. And my son, who's 18, is six foot eight. So I know what I think every time I see him and I see him a lot is, wow, he's tall. So I feel like that's probably my like defining characteristic. Six foot eight. That's that's tall. Wow. Yeah. Does he play basketball? Um, No, he's a tennis player. Oh, that's right. And you're big into tennis as well, right? I am. And my other son plays college tennis. So yeah, it's kind of a family thing. So is does. Does height become an impediment in tennis or is that an advantage? Oh, it's helpful. I mean, if you look at the top tennis players, um, you have to go down the list quite a bit to find someone under six feet. You know, if they ever made the net shorter, I think being tall would not be an advantage. But with the height of the net, it's still a little bit of a tall person sport. That's interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. Um, That's another interesting data analysis project to do. Go look at the the (laughs) trends of uh, tennis player heights over the last few years and see what you find. So do you think you have to achieve something in order to be worth something? Uh, Not at all. Um, I think... I think everybody's worth something. Um, I think achievements are relative. You know, again, if if I was born in Uganda, perhaps owning a fruit cart where I could support my family is a much bigger achievement than if I was born in the U.S. or Canada and had a you know middle class family, and I that I graduated from Harvard. So I think achievements are relative, and I think it has to do with the distance someone goes in their life from where they started. Um, but I think everyone has value. Um, you know, like I said, value to me isn't, isn't tied to achievement. I think it's tied to innate goodness and, you know, and in caring and and other traits like that. What are you currently reading? I know we talked about the astronomy book earlier, but is there anything else that you're currently reading? Oh, that's a good question. Well, right now that actually is what I'm reading. (laughs) Um, I tend to jump around quite a bit in what I read. And like everyone else, I, I work on a computer a lot. So there are periods of time where I don't really read anything. I, you may like to hear this. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Nice. Uh, and, you know, there's, um, there's some, um, in addition to your podcast, there's some great ones I've discovered that I listen to. And I feel like maybe that's the way I collect information now for the most part. Nice. Which podcast are you listening to? Um, do you know this guy, um, Lex Friedman? He, yeah, yeah. He came out yeah. of MIT. He's got an AI podcast. Yep. And yep. the unique thing about his podcast is his episodes are usually around two and a half, three hours long. Yeah. Um, but I find it to be really interesting. You know, he's got um, physicists on there. He's got philosophers on there, kind of a wide variety. So yeah. I, I, like I said, that's the one I've been listening to lately. 
yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my podcast. I, I've also had physicists, I've had philosophers, and I've had authors of different books and stuff. So I'm definitely trying to imitate what Lex is doing and then try to do it in my own my own way. Um, hopefully one day I'll get Elon on my show like he did, but no, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what song do you have on repeat? Um, well, you know, I guess I would put it this way. Like my favorite song ever is a song that most people won't know. It's called Given to Fly by Pearl Jam. Ah. And, you know, every couple of years I rediscover that song and it's not one of the early songs. It's, it's one that came out, you know, about 10 years ago, but you know, it's about overcoming adversity and I just think it's an amazing song. And like I said, I might go a long time and go, oh, I'm tired of it, but then I'll rediscover it again and, yeah. and then listen to it a bunch of times. So, um, you know, it, yeah. it's something that's always meant something to me. Absolutely love uh, Pearl Jam. I'm a huge Eddie Vedder fan. So that, that's awesome. I've had the opportunity to meet him and, you know, I'm oh, a nice. taller than he is, but very insightful guy. Yeah. So, yeah. That's cool. Uh, so we're going to jump into the random question generator. And the first question, when people come to you for help, what do they usually want to help with? What do they usually want help with? Well, um, I, I would say it's typically in my profession, typically people that work for me. So um, I think um, ultimately it almost always comes down to assessing data to make decisions. So what I find is people come to me and say, hey, this is the facts around this, what should we do? And so, you know, ultimately, any way you look at it, it's, it's looking at data and making a decision. I would have thought it was, I need help grabbing that thing on the top shelf. Do you mind? <laughs> that happens too, but not around my household so much. But yeah. You guys run tall around that house, eh? <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? Hmm. Wow. Um, you know, I think it'd be, and this isn't a, I don't think this is a Marvel superpower. I think it'd be really cool to know the future. Yeah. Like, I think that would be, cause I'm very curious and, you know, I'm somebody who I want to live a long time for one thing, just to see what happens, you know? So I think that would be the thing. If I could choose anything, that would be it. Like how do certain things end up, you know, that, that would be the one I would pick. Yeah, it'd probably be the same same for me. What's your favorite book? My favorite book? Um, you know, it goes back to a book I read when I was a kid, Catcher in the Rye. Um, you know, most people read it. I just, it meant something to me when I was, let's just say I was like 13 or so when I read it. And, you know, while there are many other books that have meant a lot to me, that, that probably is the one if I had to choose one um, that I would go yeah, that's that's the my top book. Yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a classic. In your group of friends, what role do you play? Uh, um, the the one who encourages people to travel and tries to get people to go on a bike trip, things like that. Um, I'm also um, of Irish descent, so I certainly like to um, crack open a bottle of wine. So I have dual roles. So before the pandemic had hit us and we had all these travel restrictions in place, uh, where was the last place that you had went to? Um, so I took a really interesting trip. My brother and I um, did a bike trip from Prague to Budapest. Wow. We went through five countries. Um, other, a really cool experience. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, Prague is absolutely beautiful 
beautiful city. Just it beautiful. is. I, I was, of all the cities I went through, and we went through four or five big cities, you know, Vienna, um, Bratislava, um, Prague to me stood out as like, wow, this is a place I definitely want to come back to. Yeah. And people ask me why, and I'm like, I can't describe it. It's just, there's just something cool about it. Yeah, it's yeah. just like black and gold everywhere. And what's it called? Like yeah. the Charles Bridge. It's just so beautiful out there. Also like a really well-organized city. I felt like you just, you know, hop on the elevated train. You can go anywhere. Um, great restaurants. Yeah. Like I said, I, I can't, I am planning to go back this summer if, if they allow it. But yeah, that's definitely a place I, I want to go back to. And so you took that a bike ride. How long is that bike ride? Uh, well, it's not exactly like sounds. It was a back roads trip. So uh-huh. they give you a bike, you ride 30 miles or so. They take the bike from you and you, you, you know, you go to a hotel and you eat and drink. And then the next morning you, you're somewhere else along the way. So not like we hopped on our bikes with backpacks and rode that it's, um, I understand it's, um, I think it's 500 miles. So, wow. you know, wow. a long, long way. Yes. That definitely sounds like an interesting type of trip. I would definitely be up for doing something like that. I can't wait till, uh, till things simmer down with this uh, yeah. pandemic situation. Looking forward to, to traveling. Something again. happens soon. Yeah. So Dave, how, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Um, I think LinkedIn is a great place to find me. So, you know, Dave Kelly at Analytics IQ. My email address, happy to provide it, davek at analytics-iq.com. You know, definitely encourage anybody to reach out to me. Happy to help in any way I can. We are hiring data scientists. So, you know, thrilled if people are interested and, you know, would like to talk to us about that. Absolutely. I'll be sure to link to all of your information right there in the show notes. I'll even link to the careers page at Analytics IQ. So if you guys are interested in being part of this company, definitely go check it out. It seems like an awesome place to work. And, um, you know, based on this conversation with Dave, um, you know, you could tell he's, he's an awesome boss. So I definitely would would encourage you guys to look at that opportunity. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come onto the show today. I really appreciate having you here. Thanks, Harpreet. You know, I love your podcast. It's a thrill to be here. So yeah, thank, thanks again for letting me. 